Hello and welcome to Panoramica. Today I'm joined by law lecturer in NUI Galway, Larry Donnelly, who has written a book about his life called The Bostonium. He grew up in Boston, moved to Ireland, where he became a law lecturer. He's also a regular contributor in the media here, uh, particularly in the journal.ie, for which he is a writer. Larry, thanks very much for coming in to speak with me. Great to be with you, Tom. Um, I suppose there's a lot to cover. You grew up in Boston, did you? I did, yeah. I was uh, born and raised in Boston, as the old song goes, uh, in a, well, originally in Dorchester, born and baptized in St. Gregory's Church in Dorchester, and I grew up in East Milton, uh, which is uh, a a town that borders the uh, the city of Boston. Um, And uh, I was born there to an Irish-American father and a uh, Scottish-born mother. Um, And my, my father's family was very involved in politics uh, since arriving from the west of Ireland in the the 19th century. Uh, and um, I suppose the book, to some extent, is their story and my story of how I made the reverse journey to the one that my father's family originally did. Okay, and you say there that there, was a lot of, there are a lot of politicians in the family. You might just describe your, your political lineage. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I had two great uncles, uh, Frank Kelly and John Kelly, and I tell some stories about them in the book, um, which I think a lot of... Uh, in in modern days, uh, I think a lot of people would be quite surprised and maybe appalled by, uh, but Frank was, in his era, the youngest Boston City Councilor uh, ever elected. Uh, he then went on to be Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts, then Attorney General of Massachusetts. Uh, meanwhile, his brother John uh, was uh, a Boston City Councilor as well and became uh, President of the Boston City Council. And in that role, he would have been appointed uh, mayor, he would have become mayor of Boston when uh, the legendary James Michael Curley, who was mayor of Boston, uh, he went to jail uh, because he was indicted. The unfortunate thing was that John was under indictment himself uh, and as such couldn't move into or was prevented from moving into the mayor's office. Uh, he then uh, went under went on trial for taking bribes and was acquitted, uh, it should be said, by a largely Irish Catholic American jury. Uh, but uh, he ran for re-election then on the slogan, uh, proven honest. Uh, and un- <laughs> unfortunately, he was unsuccessful. So that marked the end of, uh, of his political career. But um, I suppose they were succeeded um, in, you know, by somebody who is uh, a politician who's known better in this country, in, indeed, than he is in his own United States. And that's my Uncle Brian, Brian Donnelly, uh, who, again, younger listeners probably will have long forgotten. Uh, but was, uh, as people have said to me, one of the two or three most well-known American politicians in this country in the 1980s uh, because of his Donnelly visa program, uh, which allowed tens of thousands of Irish people to go to the United States uh, in the economically depressed uh, 1980s. So Brian had previously served as a state legislator, uh, served seven terms in in the Congress where, uh, again, he was responsible for the Donnelly visa, was also chair of the Congressional Friends of Ireland Caucus, uh, and then subsequently went on to work with Madeleine Albright uh, at the United Nations. And then he was Bill Clinton's U.S. ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago. So the long and the short of it is politics has always been the family business. A very long line. And you mentioned there's some of the stories and you, you cover them in the book about how strange American politics was at the time, let's say, uh, charges of indictment and all this sort of thing. Uh, the, the best story I thought was in the, the uh, James Michael Burley. He was denied a slot as a DNC delegate 
but then he ran under another alias. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. He was uh, he was supportive of another candidate for president that the, the Massachusetts delegation was swinging very hard for one Democratic presidential candidate. Uh, Curley was with somebody else. As such, they prevented Curley from being a delegate to the convention. Uh, and as I say in the book, undaunted and always creative, uh, James Michael Curley, the, the, the son of emigrants from Uktarad, it should be said, um, he assumed an alias, Jaime Miguel Curleo, and went on to be a delegate from the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. Uh, so I, I suppose that kind of uh, you know shows you what urban, ethnic, predominantly Irish politics was uh, back then in Boston. And it needs to be said that, you know, again, while some listeners might be appalled at some of the things that they they read in the book or the stories that they hear about, you know, perhaps taking a bribe here or two or perhaps uh, slightly unethical dealings, um, they should be be, being reminded, I suppose, um, that in those times, the Boston Brahmins, that is the ruling class who had been there for many, many years, deeply resented uh, immigrants coming in and getting involved in politics and use their own means, which were justified oftentimes by law, but were no less immoral or unethical to prevent the rise of ethnic Catholics in Boston politics. So those ethnic Catholics, to be frank, they did what they had to do to get their foot on the ladder and to help their people, most importantly. Uh, you outlined there your uncles, your dad was involved with politics. How did you not end up getting into, as your dad called it, the family business? Well, I did. I mean, I, I initially... Uh, in 1997, as I say in the book, after I finished my undergraduate degree and I'd moved back home to Boston to to attend law school, uh, I ran for the lowest level, the lowest rung of uh, local politics, that is, as a representative town meeting member. Um, and I was elected and I served, uh, I served two terms. I resigned my seat when I moved to Ireland eventually. I also served uh, on the town uh, warrant or finance committee and I was the youngest person ever to do that. So uh, I was involved in very local politics. I I also uh, was involved in uh, directing and managing and serving in different roles in political campaigns locally. Uh, but uh, the timing and the circumstances just weren't right. Uh, my, my father's always taught me that or always did teach me before he passed away that the two most important things in politics are luck and timing. And you don't just run for office to run. Uh, you run when the time is right. Otherwise, uh, you're not going to win. Uh, and so the luck and the timing that were there weren't there for me. And then lo and behold, uh, I found myself. Uh, not much later on, I found myself here in Galway. Yeah, and you ran for that, that position when you were 22 years old as a Republican rather than a Democrat, as, yeah. as, your, um, as your family were. Yeah, yeah, it was my act of teenage rebellion, as I, I've been saying to people. Um, but, you know, again, as I say, there was a lot more to it than that. Uh, Boston went through an awful time in the 1970s and the 1980s with the court-ordered desegregation of pub the public school system, uh, which I suppose had noble objectives but was done in a grossly inequitable, uh, grossly uh, discriminatory, and by discriminatory I mean discriminatory in a class way uh, that pitted poor uh, white people against poor black people and other people of color uh, as opposed to a metropolitan solution which, have, which would have involved everyone. And that really angered a lot of the Boston. Boston Irish on the ground, and in particular, it angered the Boston Irish on the ground with someone who had been the talisman, that is Senator Ted Kennedy, because Kennedy really backed uh, busing and he was seen to betray those on the ground. That coupled with uh, the Democratic Party's move uh, to the cultural left on lots of issues, issues that this country has been dealing with in the past few years, um, and issues on which the, the, 
the Boston Irish were very closely aligned to the Catholic Church. Um, that also caused a lot of disenchantment. So my dad and others in his family thought I was crazy and gave me a lot of stick uh, for joining the Republican Party. But in a way, they only had themselves to blame because all they ever did was complain uh, <laughs> about what had happened to the Democratic Party. Uh, and my sentiment was, well, if you don't like it, I'm going to go to the other side. Their sentiment was always, we're going to stay and we're going to fight for what always made it our party. Uh, in the long run, however, um, they very clearly lost the battle. Uh, the, and I think that the, the species that I am, the moderate to conservative Democrat, is an endangered one in American politics. Are you happy that you made that decision to run as a Republican? Would you, or do you think you'd be a prominent Democrat if you hadn't? Look, thing, things would have been a lot easier. I mean, th- think, I'll, I'll be blunt with you. Things would be a lot easier if I was further to the left on the political spectrum. It would be My life would have been a hell of a lot easier in terms of political expediency. Uh, it certainly would have been uh, far easier uh, for me to go that way. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, you know, this is the battle between your heart and your head. And uh, what's in my heart is what makes me a centrist. Uh, you know, I, I see the uh, extremes on both sides and I kind of laugh at them. Uh, and that's where I am. And I, you know, just as I think the Republican Party has drifted way off to the right, I think the Democratic Party uh, has gone too far left. Okay. And those extremes... Do you think that they're just going to get greater and greater and greater, dividing society more and more? Or do you think we'll come back into the center ground in the next few years, particularly in America? I, I wish we would. And, you know, and again, I, I think it should be said that um, to Ion's credit, I think the fact that, you know, although f- to a much less extent now than in the past, it is uh, to the country's credit that the center has held. I think there is a creeping ideological nature in Irish politics, but I think comparatively speaking, when we see what's happened in the UK and the US, uh, I think what, what's going on here in Ireland is actually quite refreshing in a sense. But in terms of the United States, um, you know, I wish I could say that the moderates would, would, would regain the day, but the difficulty is this. Uh, money is the root of all the evil in American politics, and there is no money in moderation. There is no money in nuance. There is no money in saying, well, wait a second, I see this side and I see that side and I'm somewhere here. The money is driven by special interests who tend to have their interests best served by positions either on the extreme left or the extreme right. And political parties and candidates for office uh, are going to continue to chase those dollars. And as they chase those dollars, they're going to be pulled uh, either in one or the other direction. Uh, And I think that's a profound shame. And one of the things I say in the book um, is that there is a narrative about a polarized America. That is that everybody is either totally red, totally Trump, or totally blue and totally Democrat. If you look at the polling more deeply, uh, you'll see that America is splintered. Polarized is not actually the best adjective. It takes the form of polarization because uh, of a system that is objectively crazy in a country of 330 million people who are diverse in every single way imaginable. That is the two-party system. Uh, So there's a binary choice on the ballot. So it takes the form of polarization. But even if you look, for instance, most recently at the Democratic Party, um, 50 percent of the Democratic Party think that they should follow the lead of the progressives like AOC and others. 50 percent think that they should chart a moderate course. So Within the blue and within the red, there are great divisions as well. Well, with, in a country with over 300 million people, it's strange to have two parties because would you say, as you're saying there, really, uh, people end up just going for the least worst option. Is that the case? Yeah, I think an awful lot of people, an awful lot of people in the middle 
you know, and again, the, you know, the middle has been hollowed out. There's no doubt about that. But an awful lot of people in the middle, when they go to pick a candidate for office, they are in many instances holding their nose. I mean, I know lots of people who would have voted for one party, one candidate or the other, uh, you know, without any great enthusiasm. I mean, I can use myself as, as an example. You know, I would have voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, of course, uh, but not with any great enthusiasm, uh, only mainly because I was so appalled by the other choice that was on the ballot. Uh, but I didn't vote for her with any great uh, sense of enthusiasm. And I, and I think an awful lot of Americans are confronted with that. But people then say, why does it persist if there are a lot of Americans who aren't fully represented by the more extreme positions that both parties have taken? Why isn't there a third party movement? Why hasn't something come up? Um, and one of the main reasons for that, again, comes down to money and again comes down to uh, a mutually beneficial arrangement that both parties have in terms of perpetuating uh, a two-party system. And when you look at that Washington, D.C. establishment, I don't mean to be glib or use sound bites or, or anything like that, but when you look at that Washington, D.C. establishment, they are very well served financially and otherwise by the continuation of the po- of American politics as we have always known it. And for instance, when you look at a, an august body full, filled with luminaries like the Com- Commission on Presidential Debates, which gathers every four years to decide who gets to go on to these presidential debates, they adopt extremely restrictive rules on a bipartisan basis to include basically to ensure that it's almost impossible for anybody, bar a Republican or a Democrat, to appear on the stage. Because governments are very reluctant to change the systems which get them into power. That's just the case. Um, there was Ross Perot, wasn't there, a few decades ago, who came clo- the closest independent candidate or candidate from outside Democrat and Republican parties um, to, to become president. Will there be another candidate like him in the next few years, do you think? Well, uh, you know, I would say this to you. I, I would say that D- Donald Trump... Um, and I spent some time on the book on the book in this Ross Perot and another guy who I talk about in the book Ross Perot and another guy named Pat Buchanan uh, were actually ahead of their time. Neither one of both of them ran for president multiple times uh, in the 1990s. Uh, both of them failed, but both of them were on to something. And Donald Trump is the one who, bizarrely as it may seem, he's the one who got who saw what they did and capitalized upon it. And what Perot and Buchanan both saw was that there was this mass of America who, um, through the the twin forces of technology and globalization, had been left behind. There were other elements, too, in particular. um, A lot of those Americans not liking the the collective darkening of America's skin complexion, uh, and also, again, uh, cultural conservatism. Blurring or blending all of that together created a rather potent mix. So what Perot and Buchanan identified, Perot as a third-party candidate, Buchanan first as a Republican, then as a third-party candidate himself, what they saw – Trump identified as well, and Trump was the one who managed to build it in uh, to a successful presidential candidacy because if you look at Donald Trump when he stood for the Republican nomination in 2016, he was with 16 other very, very qualified people, but he was saying very, very different things, Mm -hmm. very – lots of stuff that was completely against conservative Republican orthodoxy. A lot of the stuff that Perot and Buchanan had been saying themselves, uh, he built that. Now, in terms of a third-party movement, um, you know, Trump arguably had, you know, 
brought a lot of those people into the Republican Party fold. Uh, whether there's room for another third party comprised of moderates, there's lots of talk about that. Uh, I just don't see it. Uh, I, I think it's too tough a mountain to climb uh, at this point in time. Uh, and again, I think that the most potent audience for third party, I think a lot of them have been for at least for now, subsumed into the Republican Party because Donald Trump uh, ran as a Republican and won the nomination and became president. Mm, I will move away from the, the presidential role at the moment because in the book you mentioned that there's a, lot, there's a lot of obsession with who the president of the United States is, even though it doesn't really matter to the, to the average American. What's the importance of local government then? Uh, local government is hugely important. Uh, you know, and, and again, one of the things, uh, there's lots bad about the American political system, but I think that one of the things that is good is that local government is far more empowered than it is in this country. Uh, and local decisions are made at local level. Uh, and people, by becoming involved in their communities, uh, can make a real difference. They, you know, there's a lot of people with varied expertise and life experience who can make great contributions. Uh, to me, that's one of the things that makes it such a shame that the rates of participation are so low uh, in local elections in the United States. There's lots of work on the ground, uh, particularly by people of color and others, to mobilize people to get involved in their communities. Uh, I'm a great believer in local politics and in the power of local politics to be a catalyst for change uh, in people's lives. Uh, I think it's quite frankly preposterous the way uh, that national politicians, TDs, uh, and even senators who don't have geographic constituencies but still are responsive to the areas they live for obvious reasons, um, where they're called upon to mediate in small, small stuff that really should be handled by local government while they pay attention to the national picture. And a lot of politicians, I remember speaking to a councillor once who said that they, they wouldn't really get a weekend off. They'd have the neighbours knocking, coming around, asking for certain things. And uh, you come from a political family. How did, did your family have a way of separating from the community when you needed to, to sort of get away? Uh, very, very hard. You know, one of the reasons why uh, my Uncle Brian, he, who was in Congress for seven terms, he could have been congressman for life if he wanted to. He was as safe as safe could be. He never would have had, uh, although now the Democrats have moved so far to the left, maybe he'd probably have a challenger on the left now if he was still in. But he never would have had a Republican challenger anyway. But he, one of the reasons he walked away from politics was just what you said there. Uh, it is a 24-7 full-time job. You can never get away uh, from it. So he would have been spending his weeks down in Washington, D.C., then coming home at the weekends and crisscrossing the constituency every single weekend, going to this event and that event and this event and that event. And, you know, I look at what TDs do. I look at what councillors do. And it's an extraordinary commitment. And that's one of the things I say in the book. That's why I have no time whatsoever uh, for people who just seem to get a thrill out of constantly bashing politicians uh, and attacking them. Uh, if you ask me, uh, and this is an unpopular opinion, if you ask me, I think it's 95,000 euro that the average the TD makes as a base salary. Uh, if any I think that they are underpaid. If you broke that down by hour, uh, the hours that they work and the hours that they're on the clock, uh, they wouldn't be getting paid much more than a fast food worker. Mm -hmm. We'll move on from politics now because we, we focus on it for a while. Uh, you said that your mum was a legal secretary in, 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 the, in the book and she had a very supportive boss who wanted her to go and uh, go, go and study law, become an advocate. She, you mentioned that she didn't regret it, but you think that a big part of her wish she had taken the offer. And you say that you would have really liked her to take the 
that, that opportunity, why would you have liked her? Yeah, I would. I would have very much, and I think that it has to do with uh, with with gender roles and, and gender equality back then. Um, you know, it sounds odd to say it, but you, you know, mum was from a time and a place where uh, you know it, it wasn't the done thing for a woman to to become a lawyer. And I think that uh, even though she was an exceptionally capable person, there's you know there's no doubt about it, and she was an ex- exceptionally capable uh, legal secretary. And I think the reason why her boss um, you know kept urging her it wasn't entirely altruistic. I think he saw someone who could make a genuine contribution and probably make make him some money. To be brutally <laughs> to be brutally honest about it. Um, but and I, I think she was just of the mind that that wasn't for her. That wasn't for her to do. What what was for her to do was to raise the kids. Uh, and I just I really wish that she had taken the leap. I, I you know and again um, it's so heartening now uh, for me to see you know look there there are more women solicitors than there are male solicitors right now. And that's an extraordinary step. I look at the students I teach uh, and you know the the, the lecture theaters uh, are packed with young women who are becoming solicitors. And I have to say in most cases outperforming um, their male counterparts academically and I do hope that that uh, will translate into things like promotions at senior level and future uh, and advancement for them but yeah it really does boil down to the gender issue and it just it makes me regret the kind of society we lived in and the kind of expectations that were put on my mother the kind of unfair expectations and then some of what she internalized uh, as a result of that Um, so yeah I do deeply regret I wish she'd become a lawyer and I think she would have been a great one. Did you have any inspiring teacher or lecturer yourself um, that's uh, that idea in your mind of going into education? Uh, I, I had lots. I, you know, I, I, I can't say I had any single one, but, I, but as I outlined in the book, um, I went to a, a Catholic uh, primary school and I was one of the probably the last generation to be taught by the nuns. Uh, and as I say in the book, they were, uh, and I know this mightn't be popular to say in the current generation, they were tough on us. And that includes sometimes a little rat slap on the wrist. Uh, but they were very, very dedicated to us and very, uh, you know, very much. I had nothing but good experience. I know lots of people have had, had bad experiences, but I had nothing but great experiences with them. Uh, and they really pushed us in every conceivable way. Uh, and then in, in secondary school, I had uh, in an extraordinary Boston College High School, a BC High, as it's known colloquially, uh, is a Jesuit school in the city of Boston. Um, that is really, the, the, I can't, words can't describe how much I owe to BC High and how, much, how the esteem I hold it in. Um, it is a fantastic educational institution where the teachers uh, are, you know, a second to none and where they really pushed us in every conceivable direction. Di- way they, they could um, and they had a huge impact uh, on on my life and, and you know that followed through uh, in college and in law school um, so yeah I mean education is something I have a passion for I think that uh, a lot of people do and I think that we should be grateful to those who who have played that role in our lives and if you just even if you just have one teacher uh, who inspires you he or she can play a transformative role in your life mm-hmm. and you say that BC um, Boston College High School was was a very important part of your life but you nearly didn't go there am I right you, you had an offer of a scholarship yeah that's right yeah I, I had a uh, I was 13 I was very young um, and I you know as I say in the book I was a nerd when I was a kid I didn't mess around <laughs> or anything like that uh, and I did very well and I was offered an academic scholarship to another Catholic high school in the city of Boston Catholic Memorial uh, and it was free and, and you know a full scholarship 
And one of the things I know, you know, and I, I allude to this in the book, is the colossal cost of higher education in the United States, which I think is indefensible. Uh, and I, I noted that, you know, it was, you know, I was 13. I think the last trip we had made to Ireland and Scotland, where we used to come regularly, was when I was 11. And that was because my parents had to have the unfortunate chat that, look, we just can't afford to do this if we're going to send them on to, uh, you know, private schools and to, into higher education, et cetera. Uh, and here I saw this opportunity to of a full scholarship, uh, and I was very tempted uh, to do it, you know, in large part. And I'm not saying I'm the best guy in the world, but I did realize my parents were making enormous sacrifices for me and thought, you know, maybe this is something I can do for them. Uh, in the end, I, I opted against it. And as I say in the book, I think my parents were, were relieved. Uh, it would have been to a place I didn't know anyone. It, I was a very young 13. Uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is, you know, going in the subway uh, into BC High uh, when I was 13 years old. And my father, I was, my father was going in town to work. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I managed to get off the subway car. And uh, a woman pointed at me that was standing next to my father. Obviously, she didn't know I, he was my father. She said, would you look at him? The bag is bigger than he is. Uh, so it's just was a challenge, you know, and so uh, I opted to go nearer to home, and that that decision paid dividends. And again, to the eternal credit of my parents, despite it being a financial burden on them, uh, I think they, that's what they wanted me to do. Is there a political impetus in in the states to lower the cost of education? Well, I, here's my cynic, here's me wearing my very very cynical hat. Uh, there hasn't been anywhere near enough movement on the on the issue. I mean, as I say, uh, college and university tuitions running to seventy thousand dollars a year now is not uncommon. Uh, there is uh, not a there. There have been incremental steps, like this talk about making community college or two year degrees free, which would be a great step in the right direction. Uh, but it's still kind of nibbling around the edges. The cynic in me um, kind of puts this down to a couple of different things. Uh, one is that the Republican Party ideology is that, look, it's free enterprise, free, you know, private sector. They can charge whatever the hell they want, and they should be able to charge whatever they want. And if you can afford it, you can afford it. If you can't, you can't. And that would be at the core, to some extent, of Republican laissez-faire uh, economic philosophy. My cynical hat on the Democrats' side would say that the reality is an awful lot of the Democratic Party's intellectual firepower, financial support, uh, backing across uh, the, the media, etc., is rooted in the university and third-level system. And an awful lot of those people have very, very nice sinecures within that third-level mm -hmm. system, which would be adversely impacted, at least in theory, uh, by uh, the cuts in tuition, which would probably uh, entail uh, cuts to personnel in universities, cuts to salaries in universities. So that's my cynical hat going on as to why um, the cuts uh, haven't, haven't been made. But I certainly think, and I say this in the book, uh, to me it's a political winner. To me, a, a political candidate, whether Democratic or Republican, said, look, we're going to do some very bold things here to force colleges and universities to have a reckoning uh, on this issue. Uh, and if they don't play ball, we're going to come down on them pretty hard. You know, even rhetoric like that I think would be a political winner. Why it hasn't emerged, again, I gave you some of my cynical suspicions. Why it hasn't emerged, I'm not so sure. I also think there's something there that, uh, that, that exists in the United States to a great deal more than I think it does here. I'm not saying people here don't have loyalty or fidelity to uh, the higher education institution they went to, but in the United States, it's really, really strong. Mm -hmm. And when somebody talks about, you know, for instance, um, you know, cutting tuition and the negative impact it might have uh, on third-level institutions, they immediately think of, oh, what about where I went? 
you know, I wouldn't want to see that happen. I wouldn't want to see this professor have to retire or this happen or, or the sports uh, the sports team have to shut down or whatever it might be. So I think there's a lot of that at play too. So there might be a reduction, but certainly it would be hard to envisage a reduction, a significant one, sort of even more than half price, which would still be significant. Yeah. 30000 is still a lot. And a lot of people do have to work, uh, take part-time work in Ireland to put themselves yeah. through college. I, it must be the same in the US to cover costs like 70000 a year. Do you think it's right that people should work while in college? Well, I, you know, look. What I, I, I think that I, I think that it's, I think it's good. I think work is is generally this is a, a glib statement, but I think work is always good. Where it gets to a point that work, you have to work so much that you can't give the degree your full attention. Uh, I think that's a real problem, uh, and I, I know that there's lots of students who are in that position now, uh, who literally, you know, are being forced to make choices between uh, I, I need to pay my rent to stay here, uh, but so I have to work shifts and I can't attend my lectures. I think that's an appalling uh, situation when. It gets to that extent, uh, I think you've got a real problem uh, on your hands. And again, when you get that, you, you unfortunately get, uh, you know, you know, income inequality and some of the issues that are facing the United States. You have um, the children of parents with significant financial means who are able to go to university and those without uh, are denied that opportunity. So that's a real worrying uh, trend. But do I think generally speaking, having a part-time job while in university is a good thing? I think generally it is. Yeah, I think one of the things about uh, being in university is you know is getting the life experience and moving on from uh, being at home and all that sort of thing and having a part time job is a, can be a really good uh, part of that. But when it interferes with your study, uh, mm-hmm. then it's gone too far. Did you have one yourself when you were in college? I did. Yeah, I did, and I did through. I did throughout. Um, I, my, my father made me work. I, I could have done uh, again with an uncle as a, a congressman and a, a father who was a judge. I probably could have had a lot of nice cushy numbers. Uh, my father refused to let me do that. I had to work in Burger King, and he did that because he wanted me to see um, that there are people who will struggle forever. Uh, and, you know, I, he made me do that, and it was awkward and sometimes embarrassing and everything else. And people will still sometimes say to me, remember, you used to work at Burger King and laugh. But my father very much wanted me uh, to, to, to do that and see it and say, look, you're no better than anybody else. Uh, and I think it, it, it's, it stood to me in the end. Uh, and you mentioned before I ran as a Republican, you know, the first time I was a Republican when I was a kid, one of the factors in bringing me back was seeing that there were people who were always going to struggle, who no matter what were never going to have a fancy car, fancy house, uh, were always going to be one paycheck away from homelessness, to be to put it frank. frank and all that they needed was a hand up, not a hand out. Uh, and what they wanted was a better life for the next generation. Uh, and as I say, in my instance, at that stage, it was largely working with people from the developing world who would come to the United States. Uh, but their experience was very similar to what an awful lot of Irish immigrants would have encountered 100 years earlier. And experience can be very powerful educational tool did you learn much from your time working in Burger King? <laughs> yeah. I, I learned. Yeah, I learned. I, I learned. You know, some, some of that. Some uh, of that stuff. But I learned. I learned an awful lot when I went to law school as well. I mean, I went to, as I said, an elite secondary school, an elite uh, undergraduate degree. Uh, I didn't go to an elite. Uh, law school, uh, I went with a, a lot of people who were the first in their families to have first graduated from college. I mean, as you know, in the United States, law, a law degree, you have to have an undergraduate degree first, and then the law degree is a doctoral degree. Um, and the, I went to law school with a lot of people who uh, were the first in their families to have graduated from college, uh, and then they were the first to go on to, to law school. So uh, it was a different student body. I met people with a lot of different life experiences, a lot of students uh, of color, a lot of students from disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, hearing their life stories, which 
were quite different to mine and quite different to the stories, uh, in particular of those who went to my undergrad, who went to my undergraduate institution, really made me wake up in lots of different ways. Uh, you know, when I when I finished my undergraduate degree, uh, I was 21 and I thought I knew it all. Uh, the reality <laughs> is, I knew very very little. Um, we'll park the the American part of your life. How did you end up in Ireland? I was in law practice uh, for uh, a while. Uh, again, I, I worked at a law firm throughout law school, and they hired me uh, on graduation, which was a, a really great uh, achievement. I was very proud of myself. I finished almost at the top of my law school class. Uh, I thought I was all set to go with life, um, and I practiced law for about a year and a half and realized that I hated it. And, uh, you know, again, I, 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 try, I, I should probably sugarcoat that considering I'm teaching the next yes. generation. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but for me personally, law practice was not what I wanted wanted to do. And I uh, then at the, around the same time, I came over here for a friend's cousin's wedding. Uh, and as I say in the book, the wedding changed the course of my life. It was the first time I'd ever left Boston that uh, I didn't, I, I wasn't happy to get back to Logan Airport. Uh, and I fished around for lots of different opportunities. Uh, and eventually I stumbled into a fellowship um, that was annually awarded to a U.S. lawyer to teach legal research and writing in the law school here at NUI Galway. Uh, I was very fortunate that it was offered to me by Professor Jared Quinn, uh, now retired from the university, uh, and I took it on uh, for a year, uh, and really the rest is history. I, you know, I think I found my niche. Uh, the students reacted well to, to my teaching, to my style. Uh, they laughed at the to way your I, voice. Yeah, <laughs> uh, even, yeah, to my voice, and they laughed at the way I butchered the pronunciation of, of Irish names, which is uh, which 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 was quite interesting and uh, something that took me a while to get to get used to. But I think that they they liked my style. I loved the teaching. I loved the research. I loved the university. Uh, it's been very good to me. Um, and fortunately, that fellowship was ultimately converted into a permanent post. Uh, and here I am, uh, just over 20 years since I first arrived at NUIG. It's amazing how all the stars sort of line up from yeah. a fellowship to yeah. a 20-year position. How did you find the move to Ireland? You outline in the book some of the... The, the things you had difficulty understanding, the immersion, the hot press. Yeah. Uh, how did you find it ultimately, though? Ultimately, I mean, I, you know, I give out in the book and I always give out, especially like to my wife, about certain things that still annoy me all these years on. But the reality is there's far more about Ireland that I love than, than that, I, that I find irritating. And, uh, you know, the, the, the transition was made easier by two things. First was the milieu I grew up in in Boston, as I say in the book. Uh, the neighborhood I grew up in, more than half of my friend's parents were Irish-born. Uh, most of them were from Galway. Uh, so the uh, island was a very strong, and the west of Ireland in particular, uh, was very strong in my life uh, throughout, not just through my own family, but through the family of friends and acquaintances and classmates and all that sort of thing. Uh, so that was one thing. The second was uh, my distant cousins here in the west of Ireland who really took me in uh, as one of their own. They had spent time uh, in Boston and uh, during the 80s, and my, my family was reasonably good to them. But as I say in the book, the, uh, um, the way that they treated me, especially in my early years, uh, was extraordinary and made me feel very much at home. So that really eased the transition. Uh, and then lastly, I made uh, an awful lot of friends in, in Galway who, you know, are still friends today. And, uh, you know, it's been, it's been wonderful. So, um, and then, you know, of course, you know, we might get to it in a minute. My life took another turn then a few years later. Uh, and now I'm sort of a bi-coastal existence. Um, but, you know, that's been fun too. You, uh, you made a particular effort to get acquainted with Irish politics. I was really fascinated by your analysis of Fine Gael and Fianna Falls, sort of the differences um, between them and how few 
there are. Were you surprised when they went into government together? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think there was really no other choice uh, under the circumstances, in particular given the unexpectedly strong performance of Sinn Féin and given the aversion of not just the leadership within Fine Fáil and Fine Gael, but the grassroots of both parties to uh, the specter of, of Sinn Féin's going into government, something that I think is inevitable, something I think is going to happen in the next, after the next general election, to be honest. But I think at the time, um, there really was no other choice. Uh, and if you look at the enmity that persists uh, I think particularly that emanates from the Fianna Fáil faithful towards Fianna Gael, uh, you know, you'll know that they only did it because they absolutely had to uh, under the circumstances. So uh, I'm not hugely surprised, but I think it is, uh, it does, you know, indicative of a move I mentioned earlier towards uh, a more ideological Irish politics. Uh, you know, one of the things that struck me way back when, when I got here was the relatively non-ideological nature uh, of Irish politics. That is, the ideologues mainly on the left were very small in number. Uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael back then was still the, very much the dominant forces, and indeed Fianna Fáil was still the dominant force, uh, really, in Irish politics in 2001. If you look at the 2002 general election uh, and their remarkable showing in that, that was, the center was where it's at. That has eroded somewhat, uh, and I think uh, some of it has to do with look what the, the Celtic Tiger and the excesses, and then uh, you know the the the, um, the I suppose the, the depression, to be frank, uh, that followed it, and then this recovery. And um, what has fallen out from this recovery is again the extraordinary costs uh, of housing, and I think that the housing issue, um, its impact, I just don't think can be understated. Uh, and I just um, solving that is uh, going to be a, a, an extraordinary mission, uh, and I'm just not sure uh, what the answer to it is. Mm. So you mentioned there anyway that a few years into coming to Ireland, then you had a sort of a bi... What, what was the term you used, sorry? A, a bi-coastal. A bi-coastal. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I met my wife, I suppose, is the is the, the, the start of it. Um, and I met her at Professor Donico O'Connell's Christmas drinks, I think, in t- December of 2007. Uh, and he informed us that we'd have two celebrity guests coming down. <laughs> uh, RTE's Teresa Mannion, who, who's gone on to fame for lots of different reasons since, and, and Eileen Whelan, the newsreader. And I struck up a conversation with Eileen Whelan uh, at Dunica's party, and I suppose the rest is history. Uh, we were married then in May uh, of 2009, um, and uh, we, we have two children, and naturally I've been uh, you know, back and forth between Wicklow and Galway ever since, and uh, I suppose contemporaneously um, in 2008, I started to do uh, a lot of media commentary in that context about the Barack Obama-Hillary Clinton Democratic primary, uh, and I've done an awful lot of that ever since, so um, I'm in Dublin a lot to do that, so I'm back and forth across a good bit. I'm Go Bus and City Link Man of the Century, I believe. <laughs> you you get a gold frequent flyer, <laughs> frequent, frequent user uh, card or something. Oh, do you think Obama was in office for eight years and in the likes of Ireland and in Europe, there's a large sense of admiration for him and what he did. Was he an effective president? I think... I think he was, in some ways, he was a, he was a transformative president in, in some ways, in, in a certain sense. If you look at who he was, an African-American man named Barack Hussein Obama, uh, I think just the, the mere fact that he was elected president of the United States signaled uh, a country that had transformed 
radically uh, over a space of time. I mean, the vexed issue of race and racism certainly hasn't gone away um, in the United States, but his election was still a hugely significant moment uh, in American history. Uh, and I think that that's down to him. I think it's down to his extraordinary ability uh, to communicate uh, and to lift people and to speak and all the gifts that he possesses in spades. Uh, I think that his achievement on health care reform, it wasn't what everybody wanted. Uh, it didn't get to what everybody it didn't do as much as some people wanted. Uh, but if you look at it, no American president was able to do anything, including, uh, you know, the best instinctive politician of my lifetime, Bill Clinton. He tried. He failed. Barack Obama came in. He tried and he got something done. Uh, and I think that's really, really significant. What I will say th is this about the Obama presidency. Um, Health care was the high point in terms of policy, substantive achievements. Uh, if you look at the other issues, and I'm not saying these issues are easy to solve. They're incredibly hot and intractable uh, in many instances. Um, he failed on other fronts. He did not do uh, what he hoped to do. And more to the point, uh, you know, there are systemic and other bigger causes as to why he didn't succeed on some of those, and that's fair enough. But where I would hold him accountable was um, his disdain for rolling up his sleeves and doing the dirty the dirty mm. stuff, doing what needs to be done, going in, using your leverage as President of the United States, negotiating with Congress people who you might find abhorrent human beings, sometimes with good reason, but doing what you have to do to get the job done. And I think Obama never, ever took to that, uh, and he never really tried, to be honest. Uh, I think he put an awful lot into health care, and that's, that was great. But I think after that, it was almost, I'm done. You know, I'm finished with this. And I think that that's uh, that's where his, you know, where the balance needs to be found. So overall, overall, in an overall sense, I think Obama was a good president. What he did in healthcare was great. What his election signaled to America and to the rest of the world, more importantly, was huge. Uh, his abilities are extraordinary. But um, you know that 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 extra level uh, needed to get things done. The stuff that Bill Clinton would have done, mm. the stuff that Ronald Reagan did very effectively, for instance, on the other side of the aisle, um, Obama didn't get that done. So analyzing all these, you, well, you have a lot of experience with politics and politicians. What makes a good politician? What are the key traits? <laughs> there's, you know, what I'd say is there's different types of politician. You, you, I don't think there's a prototype for, for a good politician. Uh, I think that there are different ways and different tactics that you can use to be a good politician. For instance, one of the things that some people assume is that you need to be a very outgoing, charismatic uh, type, that you need to be a hail fellow, well-met type of person uh, to be a successful politician. Some people use that approach to very good effect, and there's no question about that. Other people take a different different tack. They, you know, they'd be more soft-spoken. They'd be more subtle in their ways. They'd appeal in different ways. So, you know, you hear lots of things about um, you know politicians, for instance, who aren't great on media but who are very good in small groups and get reelected mm. every year. And at the end of the day, you can't be a politician unless you win elections. Uh, you know, so po different people bring different strengths to bear. But what I do think, I, I think we have the entitlement to hope for things in politicians, uh, and I think what we should hope for uh, are honesty. Uh, and integrity. Uh, I think that those are qualities that, 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 that can't be, uh, you know, matched or, or questioned. I think those are the things we should look for. Uh, obviously, ability, capacity, uh, those are all things that I, I think are important uh, in a politician. They're all things that I measure when I look at uh, who I'm going to vote for. And then, of course, uh, you do want naturally somebody whose views align with yours, with your own. But what I like are politicians who don't just shut down the other side, who say, look, this is where I am on an issue, but I completely 
completely understand why someone else disagrees and hear me out and let's talk. Uh, and I think that that m- sense of moderate, and that's why I'm a man of the middle, uh, because I think it's important to be able to see both sides. Uh, and I think poli- all politicians should be able to see both sides. And that's why, um, you know, again, I don't, I, I have a problem with politicians on the hard left and the hard right equally because they just don't want to see or refuse to see what the other side says. And finally, would you consider running for public office as a man of the middle? Yeah, well, I mean, as I say, as I say in the book, and you know, uh, every interview I've done since I've written the book has picked up on this. Near the close of the book, I say that look, I, I'd never ruled that out. Uh, I, I, and I, that's as that's as specific as I can be. Uh, I, you know, politics is what animates me. It's what I believe in. Uh, I think it can change people's lives for the better. Uh, I love Ireland very much. It's been the land of opportunity for me. Uh, I think I have something to contribute. Uh, am I going to nail my colors to the mast? Am I going to stand for say I'm standing in year X for this position? or whatever it might be. Uh, no, I'm not. The important thing is I don't need politics. I have a very, very good job here uh, at NUI Galway. I love it to this day. Uh, I have a very nice avocation commenting on other uh, on what <laughs> politicians do. Um, I don't need it. But at the same time, if the timing and the circumstances were right and if my family uh, were willing to go along on the roller coaster, then I'd never close the door. So it comes back to your dad saying of uh, time and luck, That's timing it. And chance, uh, Larry Donnelly, uh, NUIG law lecturer and author of the the brilliant The Bostonian about your life. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure.